This is Justin Rowland, publisher of CatsIllustrated.com. And yesterday I promised that we were going to start a pretty lengthy and thorough and hopefully regular preseason football podcast series helping to get you ready for the 2017 college football season. I know a lot of people on the site are excited about that. We're less than two months away from the season and Kentucky's trip to Hattiesburg, Mississippi to take on Southern Miss in a revenge game. Certainly a lot of hype about Kentucky this season. A lot of talk that the Cats could finish in the upper echelon of the SEC East. Maybe even possibly break through the first winning record in the Southeastern Conference for the program since 1977, which is really difficult to believe. We've got Derek Terry down in Hoover, Alabama, covering SEC Media Days today and tomorrow. Today's Tuesday, and I'm recording this at about uh, just before noon, so... If anything time-sensitive, anything happens, forgive me. Uh, that's just part of doing a podcast. But we wanted to run through some of the some of the questions, some of the topics that you all had suggested when I floated this. Um, but before we get to any of that, I wanted to talk about the SEC Network graphic yesterday that kind of caused a bit of a fuss. Um, they showed a graphic that, according to ESPN's Football Power Index, Kentucky has a 6% chance of winning the SEC East. 6% chance. South Carolina, the FPI, also gives a 6% chance. And I know a lot of Kentucky fans responded to my tweet and to this graphic saying, Kentucky should have better odds than South Carolina. Kentucky's beaten South Carolina three years in a row. I personally thought the biggest surprise was Tennessee having a 17% chance to win the East, according to the FPI. I'm not exactly how, how, how that works. Um, I need to school myself a little bit more in how ESPN's FPI works. I use the uh, the Fremo Efficiency Index um, from Football Outsiders a little bit more. Um, but 17% seems awfully high, and I'm not even sure how you measure um, teams according to a computer model in the preseason when there's so much roster turnover and you're losing so much production at a place like Tennessee, especially with Josh Dobbs and the receivers that they lose. But Tennessee at 17%, Georgia at 37%, the most likely SEC East champ according to ESPN's model. That doesn't shock me. Florida at 31%. I think you can you can reasonably, realistically make a case for either Georgia or Florida as the favorite to win the East those teams bring a little something different to the table, some some big variables for both teams. Um, if, if Jacob Eason takes a step forward and they've got that powerful ground game to rely on, they've got some parts on defense, things come together in Kirby Smart's second year, I think on paper Georgia's the best team. However, Florida's quarterback play is going to be a big variable. Um, they, they should have a pretty solid running game. They replace quite a bit on defense, but you can expect they'll be fast as always. Florida, 31% chance of winning the East. Tennessee, 17%. Kentucky and South Carolina, both at 6%. And then Missouri and Vanderbilt are left to split the remaining difference. Uh, it's interesting. I would, I would imagine the, the power index, any power index, wouldn't have given Missouri much of any chance of winning the SEC title in 2013 or maybe even 2014. And they did, but that's not a really convincing argument for me. I mean, and some people say, what were Kentucky's odds of beating Louisville last season? It was an upset. There's no doubt about it. I think in hindsight, we know it wasn't like a 99 to 1% upset um, because Louisville wasn't playing well. Kentucky played a lot better. Um, Kentucky was probably undervalued. Louisville was certainly overvalued at the time. But, but just because something breaks the odds or breaks a model doesn't mean that the model should be completely scrapped. However, I don't know a lot about how ESPN's FPI works, and I'm skeptical of its value in the preseason. 
don't have a huge problem with Kentucky at 6%. I would probably have them around 8 to 10% in that range because they return a starting quarterback. They return so many defensive starters. So many of the league leaders in, in returning categories, Derek Beatty in pass breakups and interceptions, Josh Allen, Denzel Ware, Jordan Jones in either tackles, tackles for loss or sacks or forced fumbles, Benny Snell, one of the leading rushers in the SEC, broke six Kentucky rushing records last year. You return a strong offensive line, but there are questions. How good is the defense going to be? Uh, the back seven certainly looks talented, at least on the front line. Uh but how good is that back seven going to look if the defensive front doesn't get more production than it did a year ago? So certainly Derek LeBlanc's unit is going to be under the microscope, and they're going to have a lot to say about how good the defense can be. Um, and is Steven Johnson going to be more efficient in the short to intermediate passing game? He was certainly good enough in the long-range game and, and was very good at the play action over the top. Of course, he relied heavily on Jeff Bidette who I think Yahoo Sports recently rated as, as the fifth most impactful transfer of the entire college football offseason. I still don't totally understand Bidette's decision. Um, Oklahoma seems like it's going to be a good fit. Lincoln Riley, uh, even with Bob Stoops gone, Lincoln Riley's probably going to showcase Bidette and his speed. 21 yards per catch last season. You would figure he'll get more opportunities to make plays at Oklahoma, although that, that yards per catch number is going to be tough to match. And he's going to be starting from, from scratch in terms of building a rapport with a new quarterback. He, he had to know going into this season he was going to get plenty of big play opportunities in Kentucky's offense. The teams were going to have to stop the stack the box to stop Benny Snell, and he would, he would be able to make more plays over the top. But he made the decision that he made, and with Boom Williams gone as well, the big question for the offense is, is it going to be too plotting? The offense going to be too plotting, too up and down the field, slow motion, uh, grind it out four or five yards in a cloud of dust. They can win that way, but they need one of the young guys or one of the seniors, Dorian Baker, Garrett Johnson, uh, to emerge as a big play threat. And it would certainly help if A.J. Rose or Saeem King or even Bryant Kobach, more on him uh, in this episode or another, could emerge as kind of a home run hitting complement to Benny Snell. So the defensive line on defense, the punting, and the explosive play ability of the offense, certainly the questions for Kentucky going into this year, uh, as well as Steven Johnson's proficiency aside from the play action over the top. Um, as far as winning the SEC East, Kentucky's schedule sets up fairly well. They miss Alabama from the West. They miss LSU from the West. They draw Mississippi State and Ole Miss. That's about as good a draw as you're going to get from the West, um, although Ole Miss is not going to be easy. And Mississippi State with Nick Fitzgerald at quarterback is not going to be easy. Um I would caution against counting Vanderbilt and South Carolina and Missouri as clear wins. I do think Kentucky should be able to run all over Missouri. Although Missouri could have the best offense in the SEC East. South Carolina got a lot better when Jake Bentley became the quarterback there, and Vanderbilt is always scrappy. Steven Johnson played horrible in that game. Kentucky would have won handily if they had gotten a decent play from the quarterback or in the passing game, but none of those games are going to be easy. I think Kentucky will be favored in at least two of those games. South Carolina and Columbia is going to be a little bit trickier. Um, but they do get, uh, they have to go on the road to Georgia. They do get Tennessee at home, very winnable game. I'd say that's probably a 50-50 game, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And they get Florida at home. You take last year out, which is really a debacle, and Kentucky changed so much after that Florida game. I don't know how much how much stock we can put in that, especially with, with all the losses that Florida has on defense and the fact that it's in Lexington and Mark Stoops' first Kentucky teams played Florida really competitively. There's not a game on the schedule that you go into this year if you're Kentucky saying, 
yeah, I don't think we're going to we're not going to compete in that game. They're not going to be favorites in every game. They might only be favorites in maybe 6 of the games, but they're going to be compet they're they're competitive on paper against all of those teams when you consider the rosters, the depth, the question marks and the home away split. Um, one note on the schedule, I'm not convinced that it's a better path to more wins having the 50-50 games or the easier games uh, on the road. Last year, a lot of those winnable games were at home. You think about Vanderbilt and South Carolina and Southern Miss. Those games were at home. They're on the road now. You can't just count those games as wins. And and you can't just count Florida and Tennessee as, as you know likely wins because they're at home because we know Kentucky's track record against those teams. Um, the big the big concern that a lot of people are going to have with Kentucky is it's been five years since they've beaten any any of, of Florida, Georgia, or Tennessee, and they've certainly got a much worse track record against Florida and Tennessee. They got to get over that hurdle and get those monkeys off their back. Um, I did a little bit of research. The SEC East has obviously not been competitive with the West either in the regular season. Uh, almost any year recently, but certainly in the SEC championship game, the SEC West has been dominant in that game. But but from 2010 to 2016, and I picked 2010 as a starting point because in 09 that was a Florida team that was that was very good, and that was the Florida Alabama, the, the last great SEC championship game, at least on paper. It was the year Alabama really broke through. And I believe won Nick Saban's first national championship in Tuscaloosa. But from 2010 to 2016, the league has been won going back in time by Florida last year, Florida in 2015, Missouri in 2014, Missouri in 2013, Georgia in 2012 and 2011, and South Carolina. And since we're talking about Kentucky's odds of winning the SEC East, I decided to look for some common characteristics of those teams. The last seven teams to win the SEC East, is there anything about those teams, is there a recipe for winning the SEC East in kind of this era of SEC East mediocrity, at least relative to how the league, the East was um, before that? And and what, what I found out was, and this is no shock, there haven't been great offenses in the East for a while across the board, but almost every SEC East champion over the past seven years has been able to play Good to really good defense. Florida last year, 16.8 points allowed, 31 sacks, 80 tackles for loss. Florida the previous year, 18.3 points allowed, 40 sacks, 101 tackles for loss. Both of Missouri's SEC East Championship teams, they averaged about 22 points per game allowed. Not great, but, but pretty good, especially in the age of the spread offense. 42 and 41 sacks. Both of those teams had over 100 tackles for loss. Georgia's championship teams in 2012 and 2011 averaged giving up about 20 points per game. That's good in this day and age. Averaged about 33, 34 sacks, close to 100 tackles for loss for those teams. And South Carolina in 2010, much the same, 23 points allowed per game, 41 sacks, 97 tackles for loss. So statistically, and we're looking at a seven-year sample size, to be an SEC East champ over the past seven years, you better not allow much more than 20 points per game. You better get about 40 sacks on the season, and you better have around 100 tackles for loss. doesn't mean that you can't win the East any other way with another formula, because certainly you can if the chips fall uh, the right way. Um, but 
that all of those teams were top 20 teams. You talk about how bad the SEC East has been. They, they were all top 20 teams at the time of the SEC championship game. So you figure for Kentucky, going by that historical formula to win the East, they probably need to be a top 20 team. They probably need to allow no more than 23, 24 points per game. And they really need to pressure the quarterback a lot better than they have recently. For context, last year Kentucky allowed 31.3 points per game. They had 21 sacks and 69 tackles for loss. And I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, but but to, to fit the formula, to match the recipe that the East champion has had over the past seven years, they would probably need to improve the points allowed by eight per game. They would, ha- they would need to improve the sacks by at least 10 and maybe closer to 15. And there are about 30 tackles for loss last year less than the average East champion of the past seven years. That, that's a lot of difference. And it's, it's rare for a program to see their pressure stats on defense improve that much and to see the overall defensive performance improve that much. And it's going to be tough for Kentucky to do that this year because last year was a down year for SEC quarterbacks. They don't have to face Nick Mullins with Southern Miss, but they do face a tough quarterback from Eastern Michigan, Brogan Roback. Uh, they face Nick Fix, Nick Fitzgerald, Shea, Shea Patterson, um, Jake Brantley, um, you know, on down the line. Of course, Lamar Jackson. He had a he had a field day against Kentucky for the first two or three quarters before melting down in the turnover category. But it, it's a long road to hoe for Kentucky defensively to match the stats of those East champions defensively. Um, could Kentucky's offense be good enough that it could offset maybe not being that good defensively? We'll have to wait and see. I think the offensive line is good enough. Benny Snell's good enough. The tight ends are good enough. The receivers are not going to have the hype going into this season that they've had for the past few seasons. And and maybe some of that's going to be a little bit of a reaction against them not performing as well as people expected them to for the last two years. Um, there were signs that they improved at the end of last season. Certainly the receivers played great against Louisville. Dorian Baker made a couple of great touchdown catches at the end of the season. Um, you got an influx of talent with Cleavon Thomas and with Lynn Bowden and with some of the other freshmen coming up. And this is uh, Gary Johnson, Dorian Baker, Blake Bones' last opportunity to really make a mark and position themselves for maybe a future in football after college. So reasons for optimism with the receivers, but um, I'm inclined to think the defense needs to improve a lot because I don't think it's going to be like an historically good offense that would that would be able to offset an average to subpar defense. And, and this is only in the context of saying SEC East title con- contention. Um, we'll get into this later on. I'm not sure where I'm going to pick Kentucky this year. I think it'll probably be in the middle of the SEC East. I don't have a huge problem with a 6% number, but I would probably have it upwards of 8 to 10, take away a few percent from Tennessee. I don't think their 17% likelihood of winning the SEC East is realistic. Um, but, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I wanted to talk about the depth chart really, really briefly. A couple of days ago, Kentucky's first preseason depth chart was released, and uh, just a few notes that stood out. Steven Johnson is the starter. That's no huge surprise. I think we expected that. Um, I, I guess I've had a tendency to look at the quarterback situation through two different lenses. On the, on the one hand, I don't think Johnson has a long leash. I think he did win a couple of games for Kentucky last year, unquestionably, and he played good enough against Tennessee and Georgia to win those games too. He wasn't the reason they beat Vanderbilt. 
Um, they probably were going to beat New Mexico State, although they played bad without him. Uh, they were probably going to beat Missouri without him. Um, he's really tough to tough to measure his impact on the overall win loss record. Although he gets credit for for piloting them to the bowl game. Um, Barker and Hope battling for the number two spot. Although, I, like I said, I don't think Johnson has a lot of leash. For me, the issue is is Mark Stoops. Johnson's going to start the Southern Miss game. That's not that's not even up for dispute because just on a human level. If Mark Stoops were to trot out somebody other than Steven Johnson out there, the guy who got you to a bowl game, and let's say things went south in Hattiesburg and they lost that game, you'd have a very hard time facing reporters and fans after that. Very hard time saying, I didn't go with this guy, even though he got us to a New Year's Eve bowl last year. Just on a human level, maybe a self-interested level, I'm putting myself in his shoes, you kind of go with the guy that got you there. Um... As far as the rest of the depth chart, um, a few things stand out. Um, love the depth at linebacker, actually. Very impressed with the linebacker depth. Um, the linebackers are going to be one of the better units in the SEC, I think. Um, but what's really impressive about it is you withstand four offseason transfers. No major transfers, but you've got Jamar Watson, Boogie Watson. You've got Cash Daniel, who should be able to step in pretty seamlessly when Courtney Love leaves. After this season, should get a lot of playing time this year. You got Jalen Bannerman, who uh, who drew rave reviews from the people we spoke to last season. Jordan Bonner, who saw action in a lot of games last season, um, and Eli Brown. And people forget Eli Brown was locked in a dead heat race for the starting linebacker position with Jordan Jones last season. I think some of that was kind of his motivation for Jones to stay focused uh, for whatever reason. But you know, Eli Brown that that's a nice second line at the linebacker position. So Kentucky's not only set up really well this year at linebacker, they're set up for a nice little run at linebacker over the next two, three, potentially four seasons. And, you know, bringing in guys like DeAndre Square and probably Xavier Peters and maybe Chris Oates. We'll talk about recruiting more lately, but they're really recruiting the linebacker position well, and I think that their success-producing quality um, NFL impact players has certainly help them to recruit that position, but guys like Matt House, uh, they get a lot of credit for, for helping to groom those linebackers as well. I don't think that the secondary has quite the level of depth that, that maybe I did at one point. I think there's a pretty substantial drop-off from Westry and uh, Beatty and Mike Edwards to the guys on the second line, and I like Darius West's potential, but at this point it would be foolish not to kind of put a little footnote in there if he can stay healthy. So West's health and the drop-off from the first to the second line and the secondary in some spots. I mean, Kendall Randolph is the only guy that's listed on the depth chart at the nickel, and you're not always going to have a nickel on the field, but it's interesting that he's the only guy listed there. I don't think that the depth in the secondary is all that great. The offensive line has good depth. The tight ends have good depth. Um and that, that's basically it for the depth chart. No major surprises. Although, I did mention on Twitter, and I wrote a story today, I heard from a source that Bryant Kobach is either at or close to 100%. And that's a big development. Last year, he, he had a devastating injury after rushing for like 1,100 yards in what amounted to like five quarters of action as a senior at Springfield up in Ohio. And he, he enrolled early and benefited from Kentucky's training staff and medical staff. Um... He sat out a spring ball, and it's kind of been up in the air, at least 
from an outsider's perspective, not seeing him every day or, or hearing about him every day, is he going to be ready? Uh, running back depth was an issue for me. It was a big issue. Uh, if Kobach isn't, wasn't able to go, whatever you want to say, it sounds like he's getting his strength back. He's looking pretty strong. The one thing I'm not sure about is his speed. How much of his speed has he gotten back? Because that's a huge part of his game. I mean, he was routinely clocked at under 4.4 seconds in the 40-yard dash. How much of his speed has he lost, or how much is he going to have to work to get back? But uh, based on what I'm hearing, cautiously optimistic that he's going to be able to insert himself um, at, at least as somebody who's contending for carries this fall. We're going to see, of course, with the new redshirt rule, you can play a guy a little bit more and still keep the redshirt tag on him. So uh, so that'll help with somebody like Kobach, potentially, and a lot of the other freshmen who might in another year redshirt, especially with so many returning players. But but maybe you can tinker and experiment and and see who's, who's looking good and, and maybe make a decision on whether to keep the redshirt on him or burn the red shirt later on. I think all the coaches across the country are going to be happy to be able to experiment with that. Um, while we're talking about SEC media days, while that's the big topic right now, I wanted to mention Tennessee. One of the big topics in, in Kentucky football right now in the offseason, it's kind of, of a man, it's like a manufactured topic because there's really nothing that's happened that spurred this headline except some media people have talked about it and put it in the headlines. Um, but, Kentucky, a lot of people are saying, could beat Tennessee this year. A lot of people are already picking Kentucky to beat Tennessee. I can see it happening. I'm not jumping all over that and saying it's a bad pick. Um, however, in my mind, it's a sensational headline because these two teams aren't going to play for a long time. We don't know how good Tennessee is going to look because we don't know how good the quarterback play is going to be in the post-Dobbs era. They're going to have a very different offensive identity this year. They, they were ravaged by injuries last year. They do return a lot of their top tacklers. I think there's reason to believe their defense is going to be better. Um, I think they'll be able to run the ball okay. But a lot of people, you know, I, I think somebody with the SEC Network said that they're going to be abysmal and that Tennessee is going to have to make some decisions after the season. Maybe they will. Um, way too early for me, unless I'm doing one of those way too early, you know, predictions, just because everybody does them and people love to read about them. It's almost worthless to talk about who's going to win that game because so much is going to change between now and then. And really, they're polar opposites. Kentucky is being judged largely as a team that returns the vast majority of its production on both sides of the ball, the explosive skill, skill guys notwithstanding. And a lot of people see that, and they're kind of juxtaposing it with Tennessee's loss production, and they're saying that Kentucky's better or they have better depth at spots. And I don't think that they're really factoring in that Tennessee has recruited at a high level, as Tennessee always does, I know. Um, but it's not really fair to judge Tennessee players that haven't had a chance to make a mark compared to Kentucky players who have made a mark. Um, we're just going to know more probably after the first few weeks of the season. That Tennessee-Georgia Tech game early in the season is going to be really fascinating because Georgia Tech is replacing a quarterback as well, the one that Kentucky um, was tormented by a little bit in that bowl game. Um, but you know, that's going to be a very difficult game for Tennessee, and we'll start to learn a little bit about what, what their makeup is going to be and, and how they respond to some adversity before they play Kentucky. So I'm not, I'm not quite as down on Butch Jones or Tennessee as some other people. I'm not, I'm not like a true believer, but this is a guy, he's won 18 games over the past two years. You average nine wins a year over two years in the SEC. You're doing something right. Even when the East is down, you're doing something right. Things just kind of fell apart for a spell here, a spell there over the past couple of seasons. I know a lot of people were expecting them to win 10, 11 games last year, but they were ravaged by injuries. So 
I'm not saying Kentucky's going to win or lose the game, but I am saying that these offseason headlines making bold predictions about Tennessee be, losing to Kentucky, I think it's for clicks, and I think it's for attention because it makes for a good sexy story because of the, that long losing streak and Tennessee's had Kentucky's number for so long and there's this buildup. Is this going to be the year when they do it again? Um, so I, I see why people are talking about it, but I don't think that there's a lot of substance to the discussion right now that's worthwhile in terms of forming a strong opinion. Um, some of you wanted some some inside scoop or whatever I'm hearing about the, the new freshmen on campus, and there's only so much that anybody knows about them because they're not practicing yet, but they are working out. They're showing up for workouts. They're, they're putting their athleticism and their physicality on display. They're showing kind of the raw tools that they've got that they're working with, who's maybe looking SEC-ready, who passes the look test, what, what work ethic is starting to look like from some guys who's getting acclimated to the college life and balancing time and who's got the, the right mental makeup. I want to point to five guys that I've heard singled out from sources that I've talked to. Number one is Bryant Kobach. I'm not saying he's at the top of the list, but I'm going to start with him because I mentioned him earlier. I've heard that Kobach is really impressing people with the way that he's rehabbed and he's come back probably a little bit sooner than some people expected Uh, The strength that's returned has apparently impressed some people. And because the depth situation at running back isn't ideal, Eddie Grant has said he wants at least two running backs over the course of the season, but he needs a lot more depth than that. And we got three scholarship running backs aside from Kobach. Kobach has impressed people, and I think some of that's his talent, some of it's his rehab, some of it's they need him, and they're increasingly bullish on the potential for him to be a part of the depth solution this year. But we'll have to wait and see. Another offensive player, and this will come as no surprise, but Cleavon Thomas, uh, he was a star of the spring. We reported that he was really impressing a lot of people, and then there were reports um, from from other places, and and Eddie Grand started singling him out. And and the big thing that, that I think rightfully grabbed a lot of attention was he has that same kind of alpha dog, gritty, work hard, overachiever mentality that a lot of people saw in Benny Snell. Two, obviously two different positions, but but he's a dog. I mean, Cleavon Thomas told me last year that Eddie Grand loved him because he's a dog, and I saw it at camp, at the Friday Night Lights camp, I think it was, that he attended. Um, he worked out with the DBs, and he worked out with the receivers, and he was always in the front of the line, and he's getting the most out of his talent. Not the fastest guy, not the biggest guy, but he's going to max out his ability and for a program that needs young receivers to start stepping up and getting experience this year for when the youth movement happens next year, I think Cleavon Thomas has a chance to make a major impact. Um, Josh Paschal is somebody else that I've heard a lot of good things about. Apparently, he, he showed up in really good shape. He's working hard. He's got the right kind of focus. He's got an SEC mindset, a chip on his shoulders. I had initially heard sometime after signing day, that maybe we should tap the brakes on the excitement a little bit. Not not downplaying his talent, but somebody told me he's not like a TJ Carter in terms of showing up at like 6'4", 280. He's just not that big. I saw him in person at a camp last month, and uh, he looked pretty big. I mean, he didn't look TJ Carter big, but he looked pretty big. And for a defensive line that's going to need... Young guys to step up, whether you're talking Cordell Looney and T.J. Carter um, or even Adrian Middleton, a little bit older, 
Um, there's going to be an opportunity for somebody like Pascal to step up and make an impact, especially with Alvante Bell no longer with the team. Um, another guy who has who has impressed is Alex King. Alex King, and and uh, I don't know a lot about why he's impressed, but apparently he showed up and he's really physically impressive. He's not got the same kind of build or stature as the other Jack. Uh, linebackers, DNs that Kentucky's recruited. He's not quite that tall, maybe not quite that long, um, but he's compact. Compact. He's got a solid build. Doesn't have a lot of bad weight. Doesn't have to transform his body too much. He's got good explosiveness and physicality. And so file him away as another one of those young linebackers that give the position such a strong outlook, even after the current junior class moves on a couple of years from now. And then the other guy who, who I've heard from sources has been really impressive in terms of workouts and physicality and athleticism is Yusuf Corker. And that's not surprising. Um, I made a list after signing day of Kentucky's best commitments, and I don't remember exactly who I had where. I think I might have had Lynn Bowden one or Pascal two, but I had Corker really high on the list, maybe even three or four. Somebody can fact check that and tell me that I'm wrong. But I had Corker really high on the list right after he committed. Somebody close to the program told me that he's an impact player, and they were really excited about this guy. I mean, he's got he's got good enough size. He's physical. He's explosive. Closes on the ball. Big time athlete in the secondary, and he's gonna. I think I wouldn't be surprised if Corker pushes those second tier cornerbacks. Um, whether we're talking about to buy uh, not Gilliam, but whether we're talking about Jordan Griffin or Beckham or, or somebody else. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he pushes for one of those second-team spots by the end of the season. Of course, we haven't talked about Lynn Bowden because he hasn't really done done much yet, although he is going to be good to go for camp. Uh, I would fully expect for Bowden to be in this uh, in the mix for, for one of those uh, most impressive uh, player spots that we've been talking about right here. So uh, just, just in summary... Um, it seems like they're pretty bullish on this freshman class, and I feel like those guys are going to be able to play at least a couple of games this year. Maybe even maybe even not burn, maybe even not keep the red shirt tag. And you're going to see a lot. Normally, you wouldn't see a lot of freshmen playing on this Kentucky team because they return so much on both sides of the ball. But because of the red shirting rule, the staff can get creative. And they can be uh, they can be a little bit more aggressive in terms of playing guys and keeping that redshirt tag. You don't want to throw a guy out there to the wolves and ruin his confidence. You don't want to put him in a position to fail. But uh, but I think the rule is going to be used to people's uh, advantage. You know, you see in baseball the way that they've they've changed the DL rules. Teams are just rotating guys in and out, in and off the disabled list. They're almost using it like another roster spot. And I think that's going to have the this, this is going to have the same practical impact as that. Guys are going to be a lot. Coaches are going to be a lot more liberal in their use of freshmen that otherwise would have been redshirted uh, without much pause. Um, to wrap this up on a recruiting note, uh, we are going to be covering all of Kentucky's camps this weekend, as we covered all of the camps last month. Proud of the coverage there, and we're gonna we're gonna knock it out of the park again. Don't mind blowing up expectations for that. There's Friday night lights. On Friday, um, that's going to be their last evening camp of the summer, really the last blockbuster camp event of the summer. They really hype up those night camps, and really they're not, it's not at nighttime now. I mean, they start, the registration I think is like from 3 to 4.30 or something, and then they get started at 4.30 or 5, and it'll go to probably 7.30. Um, and it is open to the public if you want to go. You can go sit anywhere in the stadium and watch. You're not going to be able to tell much because there aren't rosters and 
if you don't live and breathe this stuff, you won't be able to ID many of the players there. But that's going to be fun. We'll, we'll blow out the coverage there. Then the following day, there's the big man camp and a seven-on-seven passing tournament and just some storylines. Blue Smith, I think, is going to be uh, going down on Saturday. Originally, we heard Friday, and then I think it, he said on Twitter, Saturday. So he'll be there during the day on that with Alex Rigelsberger, um, his teammate. Still feeling about 50-50, Kentucky and Ohio State with Blue Smith. Uh, Chris Oates, the other big Ohio guy who's supposed to be there, the four-star linebacker from Cincinnati. Um, I've heard that it's Kentucky, Oklahoma, West Virginia, maybe Cincinnati for him, but it's really hard to, to handicap that because he's never visited Kentucky yet, although he's never visited Sources that I've talked to really believe Kentucky's got a good shot, and he's he's the other big linebacker on their board that they want. I'm told that he hasn't visited because apparently he works a lot. He works a whole lot, and that, that really makes his travel schedule hard. So that's to his credit. Um, apparently he, he works a lot more than the average high school kid, and that's a big reason he hasn't gone. We're also going to be watching four-star DBs, Chandler Jones and Stanley Garner. Chandler Jones, not a big guy, but an elite athlete, great ball skills. Stanley Garner, a much longer cornerback who has offers from a lot of schools, but I think Kentucky's got a really good chance, and he's going to be visiting for three or four days. And I've heard that four-star linebacker Eric Gilliard, whose final three is Kentucky, NC State, and, and Central Florida, I've heard that he's trying to make it up. But if he doesn't, it's not a huge cause for concern because he's not making a decision until October and uh, somebody told me that he's probably going to take an official visit to Kentucky pretty early in the football season regardless. But that's it for the first uh, preseason CatsIllustrated.com football podcast covering recruiting, talking a little Kentucky-Tennessee, a big topic in the offseason, talking about the depth chart. We're going to do another one of these in the very near future. Please hit me up on social media, Roland Rivals, on the House of Blue Forum, on the Free Football Forum. Don't hesitate to throw topics at me, things that you want to hear about. I am going to start bringing on more guests. This was a solo, but I'm going to start bringing on more guests. Even though I love hearing myself talk, I want to get Derek Terry's take from Media Days. He's down there working hard today and tomorrow. And once he's able to wrap up all that, I want to get his take on everything that's happened down there. I'm sure we'll be talking some basketball, USA U19, basketball recruiting with TJ Walker, who has his own radio show that you need to listen to as well. Uh, But that's a wrap for this episode. Stay with us at the site, catsillustrated.com. We're never slowing down. Read the newsstand every morning if you don't because that's a great one-stop shop, a great place to, 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 to catch up on everything that's happened over the last 24 hours. Again, this is Justin Rowland signing off, and until next time.